Hello, everyone. This is Greg Drevenstead, Editor-in-Chief at Writer Magazine and your host for the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast. Our guest today is Paul Dorleon. He is a globally recognized expert on the history of motorcycles and motorcycle culture. He's the publisher of TheVintageIt.com, and he's the president of the Motorcycle Arts Foundation and a guest curator at the Peterson Automotive Museum. Paul has published 13 books, including The Chopper, The Real Story, Cafe Racer Speed, Style, and Tun-Up Culture, Tun-Up, A Century of Cafe Racer Speed and Style, and many others. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. And thank you for pronouncing my, my name properly. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> You're the well, first. Well, last name like Trevinstead. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I try to get, get, get it right when I can. So. so, Paul, you're very much a Renaissance man. You've got an impressive resume that I only just hit the highlights. Um, and you've been deeply involved in motorcycle culture and the vintage and classic bike scenes for many years. Yeah. Can you kind of give us a little bit of your backstory on that? Yeah, it's a, it's a funny backstory. It's a case of, you know, a, a hobby that be, was pretty intense from the get-go. Uh, although I started riding when I was 15, basically to graduate a year early from high school. I, I found that if I took a couple of night classes, I could graduate a whole year early. And uh, so I grew up in Stockton, California, which was actually the murder capital of the country at the time. <laughs> so taking a bus at night or a bicycle at night was kind of a daunting task for a 14 year old sure. uh, or 15 year old. So uh, actually my mom helped me buy a moped and it was a little Honda Express. And I, I took classes at night, graduated a year early from high school, kind of rode bikes a little bit during college, but after college, uh, I had a, I, I ran a printing press in my mother's basement. We used to make like punk posters and magazines and books. And my partner in that venture, a guy named Jim Gilman, rode a vintage BMW, uh, old like 19, I think it was like a 1951 R50 and not even a slash two. Right <laughs> and uh, uh, I just loved the aesthetic. It was an original paint bike. It was a little bit funky and he let me ride it around and Pretty soon I bought my own bike. I bought a BMW myself. I bought an R26 that I found in a carpenter shop that had an inch of dust on it. And uh, uh, Jim felt very conflicted about his uh, passion for motorcycles. He felt like it was uh, a problem for him. So he handed me every, every issue of classic bike and classic motorcycle magazine. Wow. Now, Mind you, this was 19, we're talking 1984 here. Sure. So those magazines had only been produced like Classic Bike, I think started in 81 and Classic Motorcycle, maybe 82 or 83. So there wasn't that many. I mean, we're talking right. a couple of milk crates, right. but right. I totally devoured those magazines. Right. And uh, it, was a, it was like, he dosed me with the Moto COVID. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, it's funny how somebody, you know, it's sort of like they're, they they introduce you to the gateway drug either by the motorcycle they have or sharing some magazines or something like that. You know, it's my brother had a motorcycle before me and he's the one who got me started. You know, and so it's yeah. something like that. You got somebody that takes you under their wing and and shares uh, shares it with you. Yeah, and, and both of my bro older brothers had ridden and they'd taken me around on their bikes, but you know they were more of the uh, scare the pants off you kind of big brothers who, had, <laughs> you know, there was like a little railroad track a couple of blocks from our house that had a. It, a berm, you know, so oh, it was sure. elevated about five feet and they just love jumping that thing. <laughs> so, and with little, you know, eight-year-old me on the back, just scared right. the bejesus out of me. So uh, it took me a long time to sort of warm up to motorcycles in a different way. And I found that it was actually, uh, it was older motorcycles that attracted me. I loved the aesthetic uh, and I got really deeply into the history. And 
you know, I started collecting books about bikes because there was no internet in the 80s and sure. uh, ended up with a really substantial book collection. I mean, I would literally spend my off hour scouring every used bookstore in San Francisco and I would just buy every single motorcycle book I could find. And, yeah, and looking for the hidden gems. Yeah, and they were there and they were cheap, just like yeah. the motorcycles. Motorcycles yeah. were cheap then. I was buying, you know, I think I bought my first Norton Atlas in 1985 for $800. And it was a very nice running bike that had been right. rebuilt. And, you know, I bought my first Veloset for $600, you know, so it was easy access at the time. And um, I started, as I began to buy more bikes and I ended up owning several hundred, you know, not at once, but right, <laughs> over the right. course of 35 years or so, um, just, I needed, I, I felt I needed the information that was in books to inform myself about what I was looking at, looking for. And so, um, you know, I became kind of a, you know, an autodidact and an expert on old motorcycles and also got really interested in the various subcultures. You know, the first subculture that interested me was the, the cafe racer thread, you know, sure. and it didn't take me long to realize that this was a, kind of a universal impulse you know it was called different things at different times but right. every every era has its cafe racers you know i mean whether you call them squids or you know in the 30s they were promenade percy's you know they were called speed kings in the 1910s um, and that's what led to the two books on cafe racers i've done for motor books one is just called cafe racers and the other is ton up which came out uh in january of 2020 so um I got into other subcultures, almost at the whim of publishers, actually. I got asked by Gestalten to write a book on chopper history sure. because there, there really was no, no such thing. Uh, and this was about six years ago. And um, I was a little bit uh, reluctant to dive into that because growing up in Stockton, I had, had encountered a lot of patch clubs and sure. uh, yeah. a couple of uh, patch club bikers had uh, robbed our house with us in it at gunpoint uh, wow. back in the 60s or early 70s. And, um, you know, so I had a I had a pretty negative attitude towards choppers, but I was I was a motorcycle historian, you know, right. so or I am a motorcycle. So I thought, well, uh, I'll write a history of choppers from a purely kind of aesthetic development standpoint, which now is kind of hard to do because the actually the clubs were pretty important to sure yeah absolutely <laughs> so with that book is that is did you work with michael lichter on that or was that a, other books that you've worked with him i know he's you know he's a fantastic photographer and showcases bikes really well so well i i mean my first book was cafe racers that was in 2014 and um that grew out of an exhibit i did with michael uh okay. he asked he asked me to co-curate uh, his annual exhibit at Sturgis okay. and uh, uh, he's been doing that for what, 20 years now. Yeah. Um, long time. Yeah. So I, it, it was kind of a, it's a lot of work for him to produce an exhibit, although he right. does get a lot of help at Sturgis. Um, right. And, uh, uh, but his father was quite ill and he was afraid that his father might die during the production. So he wanted someone on hand who could kind of, help set it up and take over if necessary during a pretty stressful time. And in fact, sure. he did have to leave right. uh, um, while I was setting it up. So I was kind of like being thrown into the, <laughs> thrown right. into the pool. Right. Uh, but it was great. 
it was great. I, you know, I figured out how to, to do the layout and communicate with the workers. And, sure. you know, I'd been a contractor for 25 years, so I knew how right. to deal with workers. But, um, and I did one more with Michael after that. Uh, uh, actually, the first exhibit was called Ton Up, and then the next one was called Built for Speed. Right. Right. And uh, when Gestalten asked me to write uh, a book on choppers, uh, I didn't actually work with Michael, although a lot of his photographs are included in the okay. book. Um, because I was looking more at history and, and Michael deals with a contemporary custom scene. Understood. Yeah. And I did include a bit of that, you know, because it was a full arc of, you know, from the, let's say the teens to the present. Right. Uh, but um, yeah, it was, so, I, I had a lot of other friends who were in the antique motorcycle club who were old OG like chopper guys, like right. Mike, Mike Vills, who built prize winning choppers in the sixties when he was a teenager and then went to work for uh, Big Daddy Ed Roth in his shop in the 60s when they were producing uh, Chopper's magazine and building cars and bikes. So he was an incredible firsthand resource wow. as were, you know, several other people, uh, um, Dr. Sprocket, uh, <laughs> who writes for the NC magazine sometimes, you know, he had an incredible collection. So it was a real education for me. I mean, to to dig into something that was really out of my wheelhouse. And now it is my wheelhouse. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, the great thing about motorcycle books, uh, you know, I've got a collection of my own is, you know, if you, some people can go to museum exhibits, you know, we'll talk about some that you've done at the Peterson. Um, I went to the original art of the motorcycle exhibit at the Guggenheim in New York. And, um, you know, it's great when you can see some of those things in person, but um, a lot of people may not be able to attend. And just from a historical perspective to be able to preserve the images and the stories and uh, the information in book form is 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 really important. And of course, you know, the uh, working for a magazine, I really appreciate really good photography. I mean, there can be really beautiful uh, studio photography. There can be really beautiful lifestyle photography. And so, so whether it's somebody like Michael Lichter, we work a lot with Kevin Wing at, at our magazines, people that can really uh, capture the, the emotion and inspiration and, and beauty of motorcycles through photography because not everybody will get to see it in the same way in person so yeah yeah well that brings up the whole subject of exhibitions you know yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a uh, uh after doing the two um curate co-curating the two exhibits with michael lichter uh a couple of years later actually uh gordon mccall who runs the quail motorcycle and quail motorsports yes. gathering uh, recommended me to the peterson because they needed someone who could uh curate their motorcycle section and um, it was perfect timing because I was just forming uh, the Motorcycle Arts Foundation, which is all about uh, doing museum exhibits and supporting filmmaking and just kind of doing extraordinary projects, let's say, sure. that a magazine would not normally do or an individual would not do. Understood. So, um, yeah, it was great. I brought my team in and we started producing and we've got, so far we've done three. The first was Custom Revolution, which was the the first museum exhibit of like new custom motorcycles, you know, of the bike exif generation. And then we did the first ever exhibit of electric motorcycles uh, called Electric Revolution the next year in 2018. And um, now we've got uh, Silver Shotgun up, which is uh, kind of, it's Italian motorcycles of the sexual revolution is my sub, sure. <laughs> it's my personal subtitle. Right. <laughs> the Peterson being a uh, family uh, organization couldn't right. use the title. So it was Italian motorcycle design, Italian design of the 60s and 70s. It's really about 1970s Italian motorcycle design, which was, uh, which was really fun, you know, 
a little bit different for me, but I certainly know the subject, having owned a lot of 70s Italian bikes and loved uh, the era. Sure, you, you've written a, a feature about, it's the, that exhibit called Silver Shotgun. It's, uh, it's in the February of issue of Rider Magazine. We'll have a link to that story in, in the show notes. But uh, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, the, the name of the exhibit, Silver Shotgun, where that came from and how you um, acquired or, or selected or curated some of the motorcycles? Because um, again, I, I haven't seen the exhibit in person. I know there's been some pandemic closures for the Peterson uh, that it's been, hopefully, my understanding is that it's been extended through June. So hopefully you get to go see it in person. Ted Seven did some fantastic studio photography um, and we've got some of the exhibit photos and the layout, but tell us a little bit more about how you sort of developed that exhibit and got the motorcycles. Yeah, I mean, the Peterson basically asked me to do something about Ducati strictly because they had, <laughs> full disclosure, they had just taken a big investment from Audi and okay. felt like they needed to create a bit of a, you know, a thank you, uh, which is not a good way to start a curatorial journey sure. <laughs> with an obligation yeah. like that. But this is the real world. Right. So I, I thought about it for a while and I spun it back to them and I said, well, what if we just make it about uh, Italian motorcycles in the 70s? Because in my opinion, you know, that's when the Italians ruled the world. They, you know, had a string of the world's fastest production motorcycles starting, you know, with Ducati 750 Supersport, 900 Supersport, La Verda, Jota, you know, uh, La Verda SFC, uh, MB Agustas, you know, even Moto Guzzi, they all were producing the fastest, best handling and most beautifully styled motorcycles in the world in the 1970s. So I thought, well, this is an easy one, you know. Sure. And we were very lucky because we had been um, in discussion with the Stuart Park collection for some time about uh, creating an exhibition around his collection, because th that's the era he really focuses on. He also focuses on cars, you know, so he's got an incredible collection of, you know, million dollar cars. Understood, yeah. Uh, uh, and we managed to include one of those in Silver Shotgun, which is a little Fiat Chalette kind of a, a beach car, you know, with wicker uh, interior, it's fabulous. Yes. Uh, but we also had the Lancia Stratos Zero uh, for the first uh, four months of the exhibit. Stunning, stunning, in, in, incredible car. I mean, yeah. now, now uh, that car had to move. So we have a wonderful, oh, we have Elvis's yellow Pantera. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> and it still has a bullet hole from where he shot it. In frustration <laughs> <one day. laughs> it's such a great story. Wow. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a collection of, I think, 27 amazing bikes. About half were from the Stuart Park collection. But, uh, you know, I'm good friends with John L. Stein, who has probably the only original paint uh, factory Ducati uh, 750 racer, one of the Imolo racers. Wow. Uh, so that's there. And we have, I think, eight bikes from John Goldman in San Francisco, who has a, an amazing uh, Italian collection as well. And... Uh, uh, a fellow named Paul Murphy up in Canada supplied a, a Bimota SB2, which was their first road bike using a Suzuki motor, which I think is probably the sexiest motorcycle ever built. That is, it's that is very, <laughs> that is very cool. That is, you know, it's a be beautiful machine. Yeah. So, well, you know, what I like about the, the, again, not having been to the exhibit myself, but having read your, your feature, you know, you really sort of set the stage, you put it in the context of, you know, the uh, social and cultural and eco economic changes that were happening in Italy uh, post-war, the transportation revolution, a lot of small displacement motorcycles, a lot of uh, small displacement automobiles, uh, 
then the racing and some of the amazing uh, efforts by you know Count Augusta and others that you know and how all of that comes together with the competition as well as the aesthetics and how it it, it like you said produced some of the you know most beautiful motorcycles probably ever made in that era. So. Yeah. Yeah, we also include a couple of pieces by Luigi Colani, who was a Swiss Italian industrial designer, who was really kind of, uh, you know, he started designing in the 50s and it was totally outer space stuff. You know, he was drawing sketches of, you know, naked space bunnies and hot tubs in <laughs> zero gravity, you know, back in the 50s. Sure. He was one of those guys, but the world caught up with his designs. I mean, he was very uh, fluid, organic, shapes all about speed but in a very organic way not in a kind of harsh pointy tip way that people were typically thinking of, uh, in designing at the time and you know by the like 60s it, his stuff was groovy and far out and by the 70s his stuff with his stuff was being built sure so we have actually a, a life-size sculpture of his which is study for a motorcycle centaur or he calls it a motorcycle frog and it, right. it looks like a rider crouched over a very fast motorcycle oh yeah, yeah. it's absolutely it's absolutely yeah. stunning again i've seen it just in the photos but you know it you know you can see how it's like things like uh anime like uh akira yeah. or tron you know light cycles or things like that i mean he had I don't, that was from what 72 that sculpture yeah. is yeah. I mean, he's just, he was a visionary ahead of his time, clearly, you know? Yeah, he really created an aesthetic and he also captured this quality of the centaur, you know, and it's not a, it's not a word we use in America, but in Europe, it's very common to call a motorcyclist with a motorcycle, a centaur, you okay. know, because you're kind of this half man, half machine, half person, half machine. Uh, so, but, he, but he really uh, foresaw that in the future as motorcycles got faster that the rider would become more and more integrated and so we've placed that sculpture right next to this bimota sb2 which is the first motorcycle that is truly ergonomic like you know racing bikes had had knee dents and elbow dents in their gas tanks but this whole motorcycle is designed for a crouching rider you know so the tank is this incredibly sculptural thing and the seat and you know everything is just about tucking in a rider in a crouch uh, kind of as racing bikes did, but even more elaborately because they didn't quite have the imperative of, of keeping the weight down. You know, they could right. just go, go for style. <laughs> right. Right. And well, I mean, I mean, that's a, that's a big part about motorcycles is sort of human machine interface and, you know, and, and riding about motorcycles and the experience. And so some of them you have more of a connection with, with others, you know, some of them, it, it feels more appliance like others, you know, it feels much more, um, you know, organic and, and you can, Rock flow with a bike in terms of its its sound, its feel, and uh, and then of course you know like I said how you fit on the bike it, it makes a big difference. That's part of what sets so many bikes apart, not just what they look like, but what they sound like and feel like, and and so yeah. Yeah, motorcycles make lousy sculptures. I mean, they are very sculptural, <laughs> but really they're they, they don't truly sing their song until they're being used. You right. Know? Right. Especially if you are the rider, then right. you get the full magical experience of right. two wheels. Right. Right. Uh, which is why I think so many people who are artists are really attracted to motorcycles because right. they are so experiential and magical. And, you know, I think a lot of, I know a lot of artists who really struggle to capture what it, what it is, you know, how do you capture that feeling? Uh, yeah. I think it's, it's very difficult. <laughs> sure. Sure. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, the silver shotgun exhibit, uh, again, it's going to go through the, this summer, uh, and hopefully more people will be able to see it. Uh, you've got another, 
and just to interrupt, um, you know, on the Vintage Gent, we have a full uh, section devoted to Silver Shotgun. Okay. You can see every motorcycle, lots of photographs, description, and there's a film uh, that I made with uh, filmmaker David Martinez that walks you around the exhibit. I talk a bit about it, and and I hopefully within couple of months we're going to have a 3d uh walkthrough of the exhibit with oh, nice pop pop-up explanations short right. films everything right. right it's something new we're developing uh that we're hoping to um offer for the whole museum sure. actually well um, i mean i know that's been a big thing that the peterson has done and since they haven't been able to have you know public exhibitions for much of 2020 they've done a lot of online initiatives a lot of videos uh virtual meets and so forth and they've really uh, engaged a much more global audience well beyond Los Angeles and so forth uh, through a lot of these online initiatives because they want to keep people connected to the, the cars uh, yeah. and also the motorcycles and the exhibits and the designers and, and all of those folks. So, yeah, yeah, so, they're doing a good job, but every museum needs to do more because uh, <laughs> they're closed. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> so uh, I know you've got another exhibit coming up, but before we before we get to the, the, the next exhibit you're planning for the for the Peterson, let's step back a little bit, tell us a little bit more, because a lot of people will associate you with the vintage and, you know, they probably follow you on Instagram. They see, uh, you know, the, the photos, the videos and so forth. So tell us a little bit about how you started the vintage and what it's all about. You know, it, it, like a lot of great things, it started in a totally offhand manner. Um, I'm a bit of a clothes horse and I got uh, uh, photographed in uh, one of the first really popular blogs called The Sartorialist. He's a okay. New York street photographer who just takes photographs of, of street fashion and uh, or just fashion nowadays. He's become actually a pretty important uh, fashion photographer in general. But uh, he would go around the world and just photograph people he th thought were, had interesting outfits. And he, in October 2006, he f included me on his blog. And uh, at the time, Google was really kind of promoting blogs. They, and so it was easier to make a comment on a blog if you had a blog. They okay. kind of put you through this step. It was it was a bit of a Ponzi scheme, or I don't know what you want to call it, you know, an Amway <laughs> scheme, like you had to buy it to do it. So uh, I just started, I just chose the name The Vintagent, uh, which is a word from the 30s and 40s, mostly in, in Britain, uh, or I should say, uh, yeah, I guess the British Commonwealth for someone who was into old cars and motorcycles, like okay. a real, a passionate devotee. Uh, in fact, in the 70s, there was even an Australian magazine, which I didn't find out till years later, called The Vintagent, which was about old cars. Okay. So um, anyway, it was just a word that had hung around in my brain after reading too many old, you know, 1930s magazines. And uh, uh, so I started tentatively, I had just finished um, my first year of, as a judge at the Legend of the Motorcycle Concourse, which was really the first globally recognized motorcycle concourse at the Ritz Carlton in Half Moon Bay. I it went only to went one to, in 2008. So yeah, yeah I had the there pleasure you go, to do that. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was the Pebble Beach of motorcycles without the kind of weird Pebble Beach like money thing. I mean, it was at the Ritz. It cost 50 bucks, you know, right. it's, and you saw motorcycles, people brought their bikes from around the world. It was amazing. Yeah, amazing. You had collect, collectors bringing their Bruffs and Hendersons and Crockers and right. whatever uh, uh, to this show. And I met, you know, that show changed my life. I mean, Jared and Brooke Zog, who put it on, I mean, I've told them many times, but um, 
you know, I met everybody there. I met, you know, Miguel Galuzzi, who was designing for Ducati at the time and did the, did the monster. Sure. You know, I met, I met Oriol Bulto. I met so many people, uh, either historic or present day designers, Pierre Terblanche. I mean, Alan Ducadene. I mean, I met all, all these amazing people who were either judges or guests or had just, I met the Ian Barry from Falcon Motorcycles there. Uh, Conrad Leach, the, the Vincent Pratt from Wheels and Waves in France. And that began that whole relationship right. with them for 10 years. Uh, so um, it was really, uh, anyway, I had a lot of photographs from the event sure. and I thought, well, why don't I put some of these photographs up? And uh, one of the first people whose photographs I posted was Shinya Kimura, the custom motorcycle builder from Japan who had just moved to the United States and was really one of the pioneers of this kind of new custom style. I wasn't into those customs at all because right. at the time it was fat tire choppers and I thought they were disgusting, yeah. <laughs> Vul <laughs> vulgar. <laughs> I still think they're pretty vulgar, but I'm a little more sympathetic. Sure, I understand sure. where they're coming from now. But at the time, you know, uh, Shinya had done a really interesting bike called the Needle with a with a pre unit Triumph engine and this wild sci fi but but kind of gnarly and wabi sabi and dirty sort of chassis that he had completely hand fabricated. And I was, I thought, wow, this is, this is a new direction. This is, this is going somewhere else. So, but by, by publishing photos like this and, and putting historical photos up from my collection with stories, you know, within I'd say six months, the, the, the blog got kind of popular. My best friend said, Hey man, this is your new career. At the time I was a, a painting, a decorative painting contractor <laughs> with a successful business. So I was like, sure. nah, I don't see how I'm going to make money in this. Right. So, and in truth, I never have made as much money as I did as a contractor, but sure, I think I'm, sure. I'm a lot happier. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a, but it's a labor of love, clearly. I mean, you know, that's the thing is that, you know, like none of us, that, I work at a magazine and, you know, none of us get rich doing any of this stuff, but you do it because it's keeps you involved in the culture and, um, you know, like I said, it's very much a labor of love. So yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And, and so I kept at it. I set myself a challenge in 2009, which was to post three times a week to see okay. what happened. Sure. And by doing that, my, my readership increased about tenfold. And, uh, I realized, wow, I've really got something going on here. And, I got invited to do a lot more things. I got invited to write for Cycle World. I got, sure. you know, it just opened a lot of doors. Absolutely. It was really the first old motorcycle blog or yeah. website. So, you know, it's good to be first. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've read, I've read some of your articles in Cycle World. I've, I've looked at the site, you know, followed on Instagram. And so it's what, what I like is the different sources of information and, um, uh, history and culture and everybody's got a different voice everybody's got a different take and so it's really gives you a, a wide range when you've got all these different sources so you clearly carved out a, a niche within uh, I guess not just the blog space but just in terms of the motorcycle scene in terms of being able to document it in a particular way uh, that people have a real appreciation for because it's you know it the curation of content and photographs and information is as important as just, you know, dumping it onto, onto the internet. I mean, it's much more important about how it's selected. So. Yeah, exactly. There's could because there's, I mean, if in every medium, I mean, Instagram is probably the worst, but certainly Facebook too. I mean, people just throw images out with sure. no attribution and no explanation, right. which doesn't really help anything, you know, no. it's like fine, but um, you know, I guess, but I guess my gift in this space of, of, you know, online media and print media is 
uh, I had the ability to move between what had been completely separate siloed worlds, you know, the custom world, the chopper world, the cafe racer world, the vintage bike world, the luxury motorcycle, the world of the twenties and vintage racing. And, right. you know, because all of it's interesting to me, you sure. know, and I, yeah. I've dug into all of it. So I think because I have dug in, I can see the threads that connect them. You know, it's like, right. well, when you look at, let's say even with silver shotgun, for example, you know, it's looking at the Bomoda SB2 or even the MV Augusta, let's say a 750, you know, I can see, okay, it's clear that people like Luigi Colani influenced the, the heads of these designers, you know? Right. And so we go back to that and, you know, it begs other questions like who influenced him or, you know, how did he interact with the motorcycle industry? So once you start asking questions, like the potential for content becomes infinite. Right. And right. to me, it's all interesting. I hope everybody else finds it interesting. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, you know, the analogy I always say to my wife is like, whenever I we go to a town and I want to find out what sort of restaurants I should look at, what is really troubles me about the internet is that it's so hard to filter through all of the trip advisor and all of the basically crowdsource information. I'm like, I don't want the most popular restaurant. I want the best restaurant that maybe serves the best tacos or something. And a restaurant critic or reviewer can provide that context that a bunch of, you know, individuals that just happen to like, you know, provide a bunch of likes for a place. So that's the same with motorcycle content is that, you know, the most popular this or that is not as important, I think, as, as putting motorcycles, uh, their evolution or in, in a historical context or a social context or something like that. So that is part of the curation that I think is, you know, like I said, comes through very strongly with with the vintage it so yeah for, sh for sure and i can just on as an on an anecdotal level i've done four motorcycle cannonball events which are for basically uh as old as you like but basically 100 to 90 year old motorcycles actually wow. one one year they had 80 year old motorcycles in 2016 and so i've done it on uh, a veloset ktt that i own a 1928 uh ktt and uh, I did it on a Bruff Superior 1150 once, 1936, and, and in 2016, I did a 1925 SS100 Bruff Superior. So, um, and one year I just took photographs because I'm my partner, Susan, and I are, are wet plate photographers. We use this antique photographic process. It's a real pain in the ass. And <laughs> you have to have a dark room with you. So my Sprinter van is converted to a dark room. Oh, so, wow. But for three uh, cannonballs, we documented the ride using this photography method. And actually I'm, I'm just about to produce a, a book on the, of those photos, but um, that's another uh, subject. Keep your eye out for that. But, sure, um, okay. but during, you know, we're on back roads on a motorcycle with a van back up and they don't give you restaurant recommendations on right. the, on the, the route. You're just in some small town in the middle of Missouri or Kansas or Iowa or Tennessee, and you got to figure it out and you don't have a lot of time. So right. Uh, I've become very adept and Susan would ride on the back when we were not photographing and she'd just sit back there and start Googling best restaurant in, you know, Skokie, Illinois or something, you know, and, and we were never in a town that big, yeah, right, <laughs> believe right. me. Uh, and nine times out of 10, the top three restaurants would be chains and yes. we refused to eat in chains because we wanted to see what was local. Yeah, absolutely. So it just took a little more digging and eventually you did find, you know, a right. proper, right. a proper review and a, a cute little place. And, and nine times out of 10, it was just awesome. Right. Right. Well, <laughs> so. it's interesting that you, you mentioned the motorcycle cannonball, cause I was going to ask you about that. I know that you've participated um, 
you know, so you documented it some of the times, but you did you what you some years you actually rode motorcycle and again this is a transcontinental rally on these essentially antique motorcycles i mean are there any particular experiences or mishaps that you had during <laughs> riding one of these because it seems like it's it's very much an effort to just to keep it going you've got long days long miles you've got uh, elevation changes and things that you know well, the um, first at least you're not riding in the sand like you know cannonball baker so <laughs> that's true uh uh that's down in Mexico, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the first year I did it in 2012, I brought uh, my own bike, which I had completely rebuilt, except I could not get a new camshaft for it. It's an overhead cam racing motorcycle. And uh, so I had to make do with a kind of a mystery cam that I had in my box. And unfortunately, it was it was a homemade experimental cam. And, wow. and within the bike ran i thought everything's fine so you know i dragged it across the country we started in newburgh new york right outside of orange county choppers okay. and uh, the bike went about two miles and the exhaust valve seized so i went through I, I i've hit a lot of amazing local guys shops like garage shops in new york and pennsylvania until I finally realized, oh my God, it's not the new exhaust guide that I just put in, it's my cam. Uh, <laughs> so I had to order, you know, finally the cam that I had ordered from England came in. I had to have it FedEx to meet me at a, a hotel in Pennsylvania. And, uh, and I tried to fit it on the outside of the parking lot in a hotel, you know, right. try rebuilding an overhead camshaft motorcycle in a parking lot <laughs> on the street lights at midnight. Right. You know, and I found problems and, and I finally realized I need a machine shop. And so I didn't get that machine shop until Sturgis. So I had time to take photographs. We had sure. the, my backup van was our photography and I was trying to ride and take photographs. Wow. So crazy. Yeah. But uh, so when we got to Sturgis, I used uh, the facilities of Lonnie Isom Sr. Uh, and I got my bike running and it ran like a champ for, you know, for about a thousand miles until the cam wore out again, because I, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't realize that the bike had extremely strong valve springs for racing. Right, uh, right. Long story. Yeah, no, no, but well, that, that's that's the <laughs> sort that's of thing. Real. It's, like, it's, it's hard to appreciate. It's like one thing to ride cross country in, in a semi-modern or modern motorcycle, and you're really not even going to have to worry about anything. Um, and But to have a motorcycle that, you know, is needs care just to get it started, keep it running, and then to travel these long distance day, distances day after day, it's a, it certainly is. Yeah. Uh, it's more than just the riding. It seems exactly. like the, the character building experiences, I would call it. So. Well, you know, having old motorcycles are a relationship and you right. just have to be prepared to do whatever it takes if you want to keep riding. And you become very resourceful. Yeah. <laughs> Overhead cam bikes are a little tougher to be resourceful. And, and people on the cannonball, you know, the Harley and Indian riders would laugh and say, you know, if you can't fix it on a cannonball, you should probably shouldn't take it on. <laughs> sorry, if you can't fix it with a hammer, you probably shouldn't take it on the cannonball. Right, right. You know, right. There, there is a truth to that. But eventually I did get the bike going. And, and you know, the stretch from Sturgis and over the Rockies, yeah. this was bliss this was worth all of the suffering and believe me there was plenty of suffering late at night sure. in parking lots in kansas etc uh you know riding a racing bike and it was definitely the fastest bike on the cannonball uh, you know it was probably capable of 110 miles an hour right and uh, that was amazing but you know lesson learned next time i rode i rode somebody else's prof superior and we had a mechanic there you go there you go <laughs> it was uh 
I teamed up with Revival Cycles in Austin and their mechanic, uh, Chris Davis, took amazing care of the bike. I didn't have to touch it. It was bliss. <laughs> so so there's, uh, I, I think there was supposed to be a 2020 uh, event for the Cannonball that got postponed to 2021. Are you going to be involved with the, this year's event? Ah, uh, you know, I wasn't planning on going in 2020 just because I had too many other things going on. Sure. And because uh, I'm, I'm making a feature film right now about a fellow named Richard Vincent, who was a photographer and a filmmaker and a surfer uh, and a motorcycle racer in Santa Barbara in the early and mid 60s. And uh, he has an incredible archive of of work that was completely forgotten for 50 years until I met him at a motorcycle event about six years ago. And we started talking and I followed him home and saw what he had done. And wow. thought, oh my gosh, this is, th there's some, there's some stuff here that needs to be shared. So right. we're unfortunately COVID has really put a binder on, on that whole process, but right. eh, it'll be done this year. But okay. um, anyway, uh, I'm hoping to do the, I, I, I will do the cannonball again, you know, I, because I've just gone through the 900 tin type photos I've taken of the event and yeah, you know, it's, there's a lot of magic there. For well, sure. You don't want to miss out on an event. I mean, like that, that that's, you know, it's like every event like that is going to be different. There are different motorcycles, different experiences and different, different challenges, people, and so. different roads, everything. Yeah. yeah. I, and I, and I love to ride. I love yeah. riding old bikes and that's really what it's about. Sure. I mean, people, people ask me, you know, is it, is it hard? You know, your, your butt must get sore. And I'm like, right. nothing is hard, but the, the schedule is hard, yeah. you know, and a bit of the kind of uh, infrastructural stuff, you know, different hotel every day and blah, blah, blah. But actually riding, sitting on a motorcycle, going across country, yeah. no problem. It's, it's, I'm never, ever, ever bored because this country is beautiful everywhere. I, except I totally the suburbs. Agree. <laughs> you know, the, the thing about riding a motorcycle for me is, you know, in some ways, the, the the discomfort, the challenges, the, you know, weather changes, whatever, the exposure to the elements is part of the experience. And sometimes it's the, you know, as some people say, it's like adventure is not fun while it's happening. But, you know, it's like it, all, it often is this thing that you go back to is the challenges. Like one of my very first long distance trips on a motorcycle, uh, I was stayed up the night before looking at the weather as I was living in Philadelphia. I was going to go visit my great aunt in uh, southeastern Ohio so I was gonna have to cross several states and I had just had my motorcycle a few months and I was looking at the weather it was supposed to rain I was like ah maybe should I rent a car and I was like nah I just I had the, I had you know primitive gear rain gear and I rode and it was cold and it was wet and I was miserable for parts of it and <laughs> swore I would never ride another motorcycle and I got to her house 12 hours later and I was shivering and my hands were black from the, the leather gloves you know just soaked through <laughs> But I, it was just one of those like defining experiences. Like it was yeah. just, I like, it was a challenge that I you did it. A lot yeah. of it I didn't enjoy and, but I did it and I, I, you know, I, I feel stronger or, you know, better for it. You know, it was, yeah. it was a better experience. So yeah. I, I can completely understand. So, um, and, that, and that is fundamentally the difference between motorcyclists and car drivers. Now, yeah. vintage car drivers, they may encounter problems, but you know, people, people who, Ride motorcycles, we're just, I mean, there's so much more to the experience. You are right. vulnerable. Right. But in that vulnerability, you are experiencing the world in a completely different way. You know, your whole body is experiencing the sensations of not just moving through space, but of temperature, humidity, right. sunshine, rain, hail. And you're also seeing the landscape as it passes by in a way that you just don't see in a car. In a car, you are looking forward on a screen all sure. the time. 
on a motorcycle, you can you can look around, you, you, you smell different smells. And I think you just absorb the world in a totally different way. And that that really is the magic of motorcycling. It's just different. There is nothing like it. Absolutely. You know, and what an interesting thing is, is the experience I had when I first rode an electric motorcycle is I know for some people they're like, you know, it's the, the sound and feel of the motor that is so essential to the motorcycling experience. And I totally get it. If you're on a, on a, you know, motorcycle, a Ducati with a V twin, you know, whatever it may be, there's certain motorcycles that that is a, an essential part of the experience. But when I rode a zero motorcycle first time I tested one a few years ago, and it was the silence and just moving quietly through and, and hearing the wind noise and the chain slap in a way that I just wouldn't hear when there was was a motor or you know an internal combustion motor is like to me it was just a totally different experience again it's just it's a different experience when you have when one sound and sensation is removed from the experience and then other senses sort of you know you you hear things differently and hear things you know and, yeah well one of one of my favorite things to do on a motorcycle is you know an engine's off ride so at the yeah. you hit the top of a mountain or a pass you shut off the motor and you glide i do it whenever possible i've done it from you know even in the the 2018 cannonball i i shut off my motor at the top of oh i'm forgetting the name of the pass at the top of uh, going to the sun road and you know I think that's 30 miles downhill, wow. uh, yeah. down into to the valley and fabulous. And, yeah. and I remember actually uh, on a Veloset rally, I had Alan Stolberg from Revival with me. Um, and there's a road that goes from Lake Tahoe down into to Nevada uh, direct on the backside. It has no traffic and it's a, it looks like an old uh, uh, Corps of Engineer road because it's just dead straight or not straight but it's this perfect angle all the way right. down so right. you're at a consistent speed i think it's about 10 miles and so we're just gliding down we're doing probably 50 miles an hour because it's a big big downhill and he, sure. and he turns to me and he says you know in a few years this is what it's going to be like on electric bikes we're just going to be cruising along with not a lot of noise and just experiencing the wind and i thought well that doesn't sound so bad yeah yeah <laughs> I am not 100% sure that that electric motorcycles are uh, the savior of the environment, et cetera, because they have their own. Uh, I'm definitely not anti-electric. I like electric bikes. I think they're sure. fun. I think they offer some fascinating design opportunities and use opportunities. Um, but, you know, they're still like uh, everything involved in creating them is petrochemicals and, and mineral extraction. So Absolutely. <laughs> uh, the environmental impact you know, I've yet to see an apples to apples comparison right, of right. the environmental impact of both, but I'm open to them as motorcycles. Right. You know, I have the same criticism of, of motorcycles. You know, they use gas and oil and plastic sure. and blah, blah, blah. Sure. So, but hey, I mean, when, we, we, we love them. We ride them. Yeah, I mean, open. the thing with electric bikes for me is just that they, they, they don't go very far on a charge and they take too long to recharge. Uh, you know, they're also typically expensive relative to an internal combustion bike, but like if I could go farther and have less range anxiety, that would be, that would yeah. make a bigger difference. That would be a tipping point. Cause you know, they yeah. can only carry so much battery capacity on a motorcycle. They can't put the whole floorboard of, or floor pan of a, like in a Tesla or something, they can just load it with batteries. And exactly. so it's a, it's a different deal. So. But for, but for around town, I mean, they're a blast. Yeah. If you've never ridden one, you have no idea what you're missing. They're just, yeah. it's a completely different power delivery. And absolutely. You know, 
the connection between your right wrist wrist and your seat is amazing. Right. right. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and not even, and even not having to shift, you know, it just sort of, it simplifies. It's like what I love about scooters, you know, it's like, you know, I love shifting motorcycles, but it's like I twist and go is, is, is a fun part of the experience. And again, it's one less thing to have to focus on. And so you can focus on other things. So, well, I know we've only got a few more minutes of your time. So I, I know you're planning in another exhibit at the Peterson yeah. This one's called ADD Overland. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So Adventure Overland. And uh, uh, it's about basically the very long history of kind of long distance motorcycles, but off-road or pre-road or where there is no road. So we're going to have round the world bikes. We're going to have early, early uh, like cross country bikes, as you were talking like Cannonball Baker, uh, also, we're, we're extending it because I love uh, broad range vision. We're extending it all the way to off-world motorcycles. We're actually uh, working with a company in Germany uh, who are building basically a Mars motorcycle. It's, uh, it's an electric uh, motorcycle that could be carried in uh, a space, wow. you know, and space exploration. And so it's a rover, just like the four-wheel lunar rover, but it's it's a motorcycle with a gyroscopic uh, up, upright system, and wow, it's so cool. <laughs> neat, neat, neat. Wow, that's that's awesome. I was just did a photo shoot in some the Dumont Dunes, and like that had its own moonscape feeling. I can only imagine a, a motorcycle uh, like that. So when is that? When plan to uh, roll out at the Peterson? We're, it's opening in July. Opening uh, in July. Whether, whether people could be there for an opening in July, I don't know. We will have an opening party when we can. Great. But uh, it'll be a phenomenal exhibit. I mean, we're, we're bringing bikes from around the world, carry to car bikes, also nice. like uh, 1920s round the world bikes that are in original condition with their original luggage and equipment. Amazing. Wow. Uh, and stuff let's we're hoping to have uh, a couple of the women's uh, pioneering women's motorcycles like uh, Anne France Deauville who is the first woman around the world Uh, and uh, you know uh, it should be a pretty amazing we'll have a few cars too some really interesting okay cool makes sense at the Peterson Automotive Museum yeah Yeah. we're we're trying to you know that's just the reality all motors almost all motorcyclists also have cars so sure Sure. (laughs) they could be fun too right well, listen, Paul, you've been very generous with your time and sharing your story. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. Before That's we sign pleasure. off, can you tell listeners how they can find you? Yeah, so it's The Vintagent, T-H-E, Vintage, and the letters N-T-T. So it's thevintagent.com or The Vintagent on Facebook or Instagram. I'm pretty easy to find. Okay. Well, like I said, we'll have links in the show notes and uh, we'll have a link to the Silver Shotgun feature. Uh, it's in the February issue of Rider Magazine. So Again, thanks. I appreciate your time. Uh, For Writer Magazine Insider Podcast, I'm Greg Drevenson. Thanks for listening and keep the rubber side down. Thanks, Greg. Bye-bye.